Just get within spitting distance of Graham, and we're fine. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you this morning full of awe for your greatness, Lord. And as Joel has just said in, in the reading, the great things that you have done. Lord, as we celebrate that greatness, we want to come and, and hear the, the wonder of, of what you have to say to us. Lord, I, I just pray that right now you would just bring your word to life in our hearts. Father, that, that what is said and, and, and as we explore it together, that it would just light up and, and, and it would impact us and change us. Father, I pray that, that you would speak through me this morning, Holy Spirit. Amen. Over the last few weeks, um, for those of you that haven't been with us, we've been making our way through the book of Joel, one of those apocalyptic books which um, more often than not we try not to read. Um, But we know Joel because of the passage that we read this morning, which is quoted in Acts chapter 2 by Peter as he preaches to the Jerusalem crowd at Pentecost. Um, But we'll come to that because what Joel has to say to us here is, well, there's a great great deal of worth in it. If you remember back the last chapter and a half, chapter 1, chapter 2, the first half, uh, we've been looking at at a a series of plagues of locusts that have absolutely devastated the land of Judah. Um, uh, The crops are gone, there's there's no food, the social standing, the social structure of society is absolutely crumbled, the economy is in tatters, but worst of all, the worship of God we've seen in the last couple of weeks has, well, it's, it's, it's all but stopped. Um, a, they didn't have very much food. The locusts had eaten everything. But it strikes me as we read through those, those first two chapters that, that what little the people of Judah did have, they kept for themselves rather than offering it to God in praise for His goodness and glory. And as we've looked at these last couple of chapters, Joel has explained to us and to the people back then that that although the locust plagues that they endured were a natural disaster, they were so much more than just a a natural disaster. Joel has, has used those circumstances to remind us that God uses even terrible things like like plagues or or whatever, uh, floods, earthquakes. God can use these things as warnings to us to turn back to Him and to be saved. And and Joel has basically said these these terrible troubles that the world goes through, that we go through, they, they are nothing compared to the day of the Lord when Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead, and, and now is the time we saw two weeks ago to cry out to God. Now is the time we saw last week to turn back to God wholeheartedly with broken hearts. And we finished last week in chapter 2, verse 14, with Joel telling us there, turn back to God. Because of who He is, and I just love Chapter 2, verse 13. Isn't this great? Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, 
relenting from sending calamity. Wow, that, that is just amazing verse that. Take it home, memorize it, it's brilliant. But, but having challenged us to turn to God because of who he is, in verse 15 through to 17, Joel turns around and he urged the people of his time to, to drop everything they were doing and to turn to God wholeheartedly and just fall on their knees before him and, and plead for him for forgiveness and, and to save them, and plead that God would spare them. And we're talking everybody doing this. We've, we've got the old people, we've got the young people, we've got kids who can't even speak yet. We've got um, a bride and groom on their honeymoon are, are called out of their chambers to come and join in this, in this petition to God, spare your people. Verse 17. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is your God? Where is their God? You know, as, as I was reading this, I stopped at the end of verse 17 there and I thought to myself, in many ways, that's not an unfamiliar question to us. Where is your God? In many ways, can we not associate with that prayer of, of the people of Judah? I mean, sure, the situation is different. They, they were praying for their very lives to be spared. We, we have already been saved in Christ. I mean, they were praying for God to, to have mercy on them, to, to, to lift His hand of judgment off them. We have already received mercy in abundance at the cross, but, but, but it strikes me that the social context for the people of Judah in Joel's time is, is so similar to our social context as Christians today. Because the big problem, says Joel uh, in Judah at the time, wasn't so much the locust plagues, the big problem was that the nation had become a byword among the other nations. They were being mocked. They were treated as an object of scorn because it looked like God had abandoned them. Like God was powerless. Like God was no good for them. I can speak from personal experience that, that I've faced that same sort of question from people myself who think I'm a bit strange in the head for believing in God. Because there's so much wrong in this world of ours, isn't there? And people look to us and they say, well, God must be absent. Where is your God? Or, or God must be powerless. Where is your God? Or maybe God doesn't exist. Where is your God? And just turn on the TV any night and you, you'll see something of this being a Christianity, being a, the scorn of the nations. I think Paul had it right. He says uh, the gospel we preach, Christ crucified is foolishness to the Greeks. I mean it's foolishness to the world around us. Which brings us to, 
to the passage, the, the bit of the passage that I really want to focus on, chapter, eight, uh, chapter 2, verse, verse 18 to 32. And God hears the, the prayer for mercy. Uh, that's what verse 17 is. It's a prayer for God's mercy. God hears this in verse 18. Then the Lord will be jealous for His land and take pity on His people and the Lord will reply. And this idea of, of God will then be jealous. I mean, for us, jealousy is... It's not usually considered a very positive emotion. If somebody says you're jealous, they're not trying to give you a compliment. They're, they're saying something nasty about you. It, it's usually pettiness or bitterness. Or, or, or I think maybe most of the time when, when we speak about being jealous, we're, we're really speaking about being envious for, for something that somebody else has got. and We want it. And yet Joel turns around in chapter 2 verse 18 and says, when God hears the prayer for mercy in verse 17, He responds with jealousy. He's jealous for His land. Imagine I came home with you this afternoon and I brought a ute with all sorts of nice building materials. Never going to happen. I'm totally useless at building stuff. And I set up a corner cafe on the front of your property. And I hooked into your electrical wires and I disconnected your phone and plugged it into my little shop. Wouldn't you come out of your house, all friendly and kind, and say, get off my land right now, you so-and-so? Wouldn't you be jealous for your land? Wouldn't you have this, this sense of possessiveness? This is mine. I mean, this is, that's the kind of thing Joel's talking about. This God's possessiveness of saying, this is mine. And I will claim my own as my own. I'm jealous for what already is mine. I mean, what's this thing God says, I will be jealous for, for my land? I think that's just another way of saying that, that God says, I will... Show mercy and grace to my people. Um, we've got to understand that, that, that in Joel's day, in Jewish thought, the, the idea of the land is, is so tightly wound up with, with you as a person. Um, let, me, let me come to it another way. The land of Judah was the land of the promise. God said, I'm giving you a land of milk and honey. The people on which God has pity are the people of the promise. God says, I will make you a great nation. And so when God says, I will be jealous for my land and I will have pity for my people, He says it because He is the God who promised the land and who promised the people. The promiser comes and says, I will stand by my promises and I will bless you. I will stand by my promises because I loved you enough to give you the land, and I love you enough to make you my people. And you know, just like the story of Ignatius the church mouse, the, the history of Israel, I mean, just read through the Bible, open any point and you're bound to find this, it is a history of God's people rebelling against Him, doing the wrong thing, God coming and punishing them 
but but always calling them back to to himself. And that's what we've seen over the last two weeks. God punishing his people with a view to, to calling them back to repentance. But when people turn to him, verse 17, and cry out for mercy, God's response is possessive, passionate love. I have promised you the land. I have promised you to be my people and I will stand by that. It might come as a shock and a surprise to everyone here that I've never been as perfect as I am now. take from the laugh that you all are shocked. Uh, growing up as a child, time and again, I would get punished when I did something wrong. I guess it's again like the children's story. I'd sometimes have to, whatever, I'd, I'd get a belting or I'd miss out on a treat or whatever and, and it was terrible. And, and I know now that, that my parents didn't enjoy punishing me but the reason they punished me is because of their love. And their pity for me. And the thing I can remember is that whenever I repented and turned back and said, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? There was always that openness that said, of course. We don't like to see you in that state of, of miserableness. And that's exactly what God does. He, he doesn't enjoy punishing us. God, God's not some sort of cosmic bad dad who, who takes a perverse pleasure out of hurting us. God, God loves us and he, and he punishes so that he will draw us back. The writer to the Hebrew uh, speaks about that. He, he says that, that God punishes those, punishes those that he loves. And yet he has pity on us. And yet he is jealous for us. And yet his pity for us. I mean, it just blows my mind when I think about it. God feels so bad about us when we are under sin and punishment that He, that he gave Himself and, and took that punishment on Himself. I mean, that's, that's really feeling bad for somebody. When you say, I... I I will take it on myself. I pity you so much that I will take it on myself. You see, I think verse 18, when God speaks about being jealous and about showing pity, it's just another way to say that God says, I will show grace to you who turn to me and ask for mercy. I mean, grace, amazing, abundant, undeserved grace. Grace that, that drives out fear and, and ushers in joy and gladness and praise and celebration for the great wonders that God has done. I mean, just look in, in verses 19 to 27 at, at all the different ways that God just pours out blessing after blessing after blessing on those who cry to Him. Verse 19, uh, the, the first little bit, the Lord will reply to you, I'm sending you grain, new wine, oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Again, verse 26, you will have plenty to eat until you are full. It says, God, I'm not just going to give you enough to eat, I'm going to give you enough so that you have plenty and you are full and there's enough for everybody. What a blessing. Verse 20, God says, 
so much is my grace that I will, I, I will bring you relief from your punishment. Verse 20 here seems to be talking about God driving away the locust plagues um, from the land to the north and, 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 and driving them into the Dead Sea on one hand and the ocean on the other hand. And verse 21 to 25 says, God, my grace is so abundant that when it comes, there is just gladness. There's the whole of creation the land and the animals and the fields and the people just rejoice at God's great deeds. The wonders of God. As all things are made new. You might notice that uh, there's green on the cross today. Reg, why is there green on the cross? New life in Christ and the Holy Spirit. You see in verse 22, um, it says there, be not afraid of wild animals, for the, green, for the open pastures are becoming green. This is just an aside here, but that word green it is actually a verb. It says the open pastures are greening. Now why am I telling you that it's a verb and not a noun? Well, because there's only one other time when the word green is used as a verb in the Bible. And that's in Genesis chapter 1 at the story of creation. In other words, verse 22, what what we've got here, God says, you ask for mercy. God says, I'm going to bring new life and new creation. I'm going to make everything new. All the stuff that sin and your punishment has mangled, it's going to be restored and it's going to be great. And verse 26, you're going to praise the name of the Lord and you're going to know that I am your God and I am with you. And then there's the, the really big blessing. The, the blessing that's repeated three times, verse 19, verse 26, verse 27, says God, Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. Never again will my people be shamed. Never again will my people be shamed. What a brilliant God we serve. He just pours out blessing to those who ask for mercy. But you know, as, as I was thinking through this passage I, I looked at these verses 18 through to 27 and, and I asked myself what relevance does this actually have for us right here, right now today I mean it's all very well and good to, to speak about God bringing relief for the people of Joel's day I mean most of the books that I read say that that verse 18 to verse 27 are not for us. They are for the people in Joel's day because God was going to, to turn around the, the terrible calamity of the locusts. That when the people in verse 17 prayed, verse 18, God was going to bless their socks off and He's done that. It's in the past. Let's move on. Now, if that's all that, that, that verse 18 through to 27 is about, if it's about Joel's people back then 
Now, what does it mean for us today? I'm absolutely convinced that every single line of Scripture is of relevance to us today, but, but what does this mean? How does this change our lives? I mean, is it, is it simply a, a nice object lesson that, that when we turn to God and ask for mercy, God will bless us and God will give us grace in abundance? That's a great lesson. It's a true lesson too. God blesses those who turn to Him. God, God's grace goes out in abundance to those who call on Him. But but I'm wondering about that big promise of God. Verse 19, verse 26, verse 27 where He says, Never again will My people be made an object of scorn. Never again will My people be shamed. Never again will My people be shamed. Verse 27. Weren't we saying at the beginning of, of the talk that, that we could associate with the people in verse 17 when they said, where is your God? Isn't that our experience that, that so often today still there is a, a modicum of scorn against the Christian faith? I know that, that growing up in high school I faced people trying to shame me for being a Christian. I'm sure you guys have faced similar things in your lives. What, what's happening here? God says never again will this happen. And we look at our lives around us and it seems to be happening. What on earth? How, how does this apply? Is it just that this part of Joel doesn't apply to us? It does apply, of course. You know I'm going to say that. But I think to understand how it applies, we need to go back to the very first word of verse 18. Then, then the Lord will be jealous for his land. Then the Lord will take pity on his people. When is this then of verse 18? I think, yes, in part it was in Joel's day. They, they certainly saw a reversal of their fortunes. But, but most fully, I believe that then of, of, of Joel 2 verse 18 came at the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says that, that all of God's promises to us are, are, are yes in Christ Jesus. I mean, these promises in verses 18 to 27 are yes to the people in Joel's day in Christ Jesus and they are yes to us in Christ Jesus. And so when God says, I will never again make my people an object of scorn, we can absolutely stand on that but because it is true in Christ Jesus. You know, when, when we think about it, People today might mock our faith, but I mean, even at Pentecost, remember what happened when the Spirit came? Some people turned around and said, Look at those drunkards, it's not even midday. But when Jesus returns on the great day of the Lord, truth will out and we will be revealed as the children of God. And, 
and that promise of God, you will never be shamed, is, is definitely ours in Christ because, because on the cross, Jesus took the scorn of the nations onto Himself. And on the cross, Jesus took the shame of the nations onto Himself. And when He died and He was resurrected and He was raised to glory and seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven from where He will come to judge the living and the dead, He is there in glory. He is in charge. And I want to know who then can say, I will scorn that. Who can say, I will put shame on the one who is in glory over all else? And and who then can shame us? If we are in Christ and we have died with Him and we have been raised with Him and, and we see in the New Testament we will be glorified with Him. What shame can there be when we have been glorified and lifted up? In Christ. Peter on the day of Pentecost, by the Holy Spirit working within him, he he understood that that Joel here in chapter 2 was speaking about the events that were unfolding in his life that Jesus had been raised to glory. And that on that day, as the, as the Spirit of God was poured out, verse 28 to 32, was starting to come true. Afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. If verses 18 through to 27 are ours in Christ, that is death and resurrection and crucifixion and glorification, then we must say that right now, verse 28, we are living in the afterward age. We are living in the age of the Spirit that that was inaugurated at Pentecost on that great day when tongues of, it looked like fire settled on the disciples. You know, for, for Joel's hearers, verses 28 and 29 must have come like an incredible shock for Joel to turn around through God and, and God through him to say that that, that I will pour out my spirit on you. In, in the Old Testament times, God's spirit came on specific people at specific times to do a specific job. There's an incident in Numbers, uh, chapter 11, chapter 12, where, where, where Moses is, is feeling a bit burdened by having to lead the whole of the nation of Israel. And, and God says to him, well, what, what I want you to do is get together 70 uh, elders and respected blokes and what I'm going to do, Moses, I'm going to take some of the spirit which I've put on you and I'm going to put it on them. And they're going to help you lead this, this nation. And they did this and they got the 70 blokes together at the meeting place, the tent of meeting. Uh, two of them didn't make it. Uh, Madad and Eldad. Great names. Madad and Eldad didn't make it. They stayed in the camp. And, and as they stood there, the, 70, well, the 68 together, God's spirit came down on them all 68 of them, and they started prophesying. 
and the strange thing is that, that, that a messenger ran into the, to the camp and said to Moses, Moses, you know Eldad and Medad who are supposed to be here, they're still in the camp. They're in the camp and they're prophesying too because God's Spirit has come upon them. And Joseph, uh, who had no parents, Joseph the son of Nun, um, turned to Moses and said to Moses, Moses, you've got to make them stop. And Moses turned to him, Numbers 11, verse 29 or something, and he says, Joshua, are you jealous on my behalf? I wish that all of God's people could have the Holy Spirit poured out on them. I mean, this is Moses' wish from way back when, that, that all of them could experience the, the Spirit of God, the, the encounter with the living God, the, the life with the Holy Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And hearing Joel, Joel turns around and says, it's coming, the day is coming when everybody will receive the Spirit. And then on the day of Pentecost, says Peter, the day has come and the Spirit is here and young men will prophesy and old men will, oh, let me get this, this order right. Sons and daughters will prophesy, old men will dream dreams, young men will have visions. Now, as good Baptists, we can say, yes, we agree with that. We live in the age of the Spirit. But I want to challenge us to to listen to what God, through Joel and through Peter later, is actually saying. God says, I will pour out my Spirit on one or two of you in the church. I will pour out my Spirit and maybe you, you and you will do some prophesying. I will pour out my spirit on all peoples. What am I saying? Should we all be prophets? No. Uh, prophecy is a spiritual gift. Um, but yes. If we have the Holy Spirit in us, we are prophets of God. I mean, what, what is the role of a prophet? The role of a prophet is to tell people to turn back to God. What is the role of the church? Jesus, Matthew 28, says to us, um, I, I'm commissioning you to go into the world and make disciples. I'm commissioning you as the church, all of you, to be prophets to the world. Isn't it telling that on the day of Pentecost, as, as Peter sees Joel chapter 2 verse 28 come true, having experienced Joel 18, uh, 2, 18 to 27 come true, when the Holy Spirit comes, 5,000 people, Come to faith in Christ Jesus. When the Holy Spirit comes, Peter preaches a humdinger of a sermon. When the Holy Spirit comes, Philip can share the gospel with an Ethiopian. When the Holy Spirit comes, Cornelius and his household turn and be saved. When the Holy Spirit comes, time and again, the the, the kingdom of God just advances and leaps and bounds and, and great deeds are done. you're sitting here going, I'm not an evangelist, Nick. I am not a prophet. Yes, some of us are especially gifted for different tasks. Do you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1? He says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts 
especially the gift of prophecy. And he goes on in chapter 14 of, of, of Corinthians there and he says, the reason we should desire the gift of prophecy is because if somebody walks into our church, what's going to happen? They might hear and they might be saved. I mean, that, that's, that's verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and we are given the Spirit so that they will know on whom to call. Gone a little bit over time. I want to finish here. And I just want to pray. I want to dare to pray for the Spirit, if I may. What am I asking you for? (laughs) God says we should, so I'm going to. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good to us. You are gracious in, in such abundance. You are merciful when we need mercy the most. You are pitiful of our, of our fallen condition. You are jealous for your creation. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, that because of your great compassion and your great pity for us, you died for us. Lord, this is such good news. Lord, we have turned and we have been saved. And Father, we pray now that Holy Spirit, as we live in this age where you work in our lives, would you work in our lives? Lord, may we desire to be people who share the good news through our words, through our lives, through our deeds. Lord, we pray that we would be a people, a prophetic people, a people who are looking forward to the day when you return. Lord, add to your number. May all those who call on your name, as you have promised, be saved. Amen. Oh, <coughs>